0: Bottom line up front, what are you going to hear about and learn about in this episode? I interviewed Brandon Bidell, Director of Product at Red Ventures. So, some key takeaways or thoughts of my perspective of, of what I saw was Brandon's point of view. Number one, be willing to change your mind, especially based on new information. Be willing to measure and iterate. It's easy to get attached to tools or tech because they are cool. Don't stay objective. Number two, it's crucial to align on what problem or problems you are trying to solve and why before moving forward on vendor tool selection, no matter build versus buy. It doesn't, if it doesn't have a positive return on investment, why do the work? Number three, beware the sunk cost fallacy. It's easy to not want to shut something down that you've spent a lot on, but don't throw good money after bad. Number four, When requirement gathering or negotiating, have a maniacal focus on asking, you know, what does this drive for the business? You can quickly sort the nice to haves from the needs and you can have an open and honest conversation about cost benefit of each each aspect of a request. Number five, when thinking about maximizing value, there is always one constraint that is the bottleneck. You can optimize other things, but they won't drive the value. Find and fix the value bottleneck. Number six, a simple two-axes framework when thinking about use cases and requirements is value versus complexity. Obviously, look for high-value, low-complexity first. (laughs) Number seven, be open and honest in discussions around expected costs of work and tools. Which can be considered part of the complexity. The data consumers understand the value and can weigh the return on investment. Number eight, it's very important to understand data consumers' incentives, so you can collaboratively figure out what is best for all parties. Number nine, look to create in the open a decision journal relative to build versus buy, you know, vendor selection kind of decisions. It will create an open environment and get your thoughts better organized. Number 10, that decision journal will make it easier politically to say you have new information and should consider a change. And you can better measure against if your assumptions were right, or when it's time to reevaluate if a tool or solution is still working for you. Number 11, it's very crucial to look at potential major success of a tool selection. What happens if our use is 10x or 100x, our initial expectation? That can lead to really poor unit economics in the future for certain selections, so it shouldn't be overlooked. Number 12, it's easy to over-innovate. Think of having a certain number of innovation tokens. The cost of change is real and also hits people's patience. Look to see if existing tooling or capabilities support most of your use case first before asking and evaluating something new. Number 13, total cost of ownership, not just initial purchase price, is crucial. How much of your team's time will be spent managing and maintaining the tool? Look especially at skills, governance controls, and the ability to measure if you are successful. Number 14. Perfect is the enemy of good in choosing tools. Use a well-defined process to avoid really bad decisions, but spending time to find the absolute best solution when any one of like six choices will do just fine is rarely worth it. Number 15. Having your reasoning and process written down and in the open drives trust. Trust towards the initial decision and trust for when it's time to reevaluate a a, a tool, right? It also makes it easier to spot if something relative to your initial assumptions has changed. Number 16, seek out those who might be the most against your decision. Take the time to understand their pain points and concerns. Try to incorporate their concerns and align their incentives if possible. Number 17, when adding a new tool or serving a new use case, focus on how you will measure if you are successful now and in the future. It doesn't have to be perfect, but otherwise, you don't know how well you are doing and will miss out on a great learning experience to do better in the future. Number 18, when you select a vendor, There is a logical time to reevaluate your choice. And if it's going the right thing going forward, you know, when the contract renewal is coming up. And there are easily defined economics in play, right? You should do the same thing for anything you've built. Set an artificial time to reevaluate. Don't wait for things to go bad before you say, is this going to go bad? Is this going bad? Number 19. Use the anti-corruption concept from microservices in data. You can avoid a lot of data integration costs, and you are more easily able to rip things out of your platform. But it's okay to leverage proprietary solutions, too, in data mesh. It doesn't have to all be open source or or homegrown or whatever. Just be cognizant that using proprietary things may become an issue in the future. Finally, number 20. Involve the data consumers early in the process around serving their use case. And it helps for them to have skin in the game so they are focused on driving to the most business efficient outcome. Okay, enough of just me. Let's hear from our awesome guest in this interview episode. Very, very excited for today's episode here. I've got Brandon Beidel, who is the Director of Product at Red Ventures. And I reached out to Brandon specifically because he had been on an episode of the, uh, the Data Engineering Podcast and was talking a lot about some really interesting concepts around treating your platform as a product, right? And I'm not even sure if you used that exact phrase, but it really was, everything was, this is a living, breathing thing right and and how do you think about actually building this out so we're going to talk about some vendor selection stuff you know build versus buy and we're going to talk about like how things obviously change over time so what assumptions you had they might have been justified historically but like your assumptions and your priorities are changing so how do you think about that his his way of looking at tool stewardship i think is really important as well that we don't just um get something into production that we have to keep it uh, healthy and maintained and all of that, and that we we keep that kind of knowledge flowing as well as to other people, how to use that. And just kind of why are we seeing so much entropy, especially more recently in the data space and, and how can we deal with that? What does it mean? So very excited because I think this is really important for a lot of you people out there that are looking at how do we build the initial data platform, but not set ourselves up for too much tech debt. (laughs) So uh, with that as some background to the conversation, uh, Brandon, if you don't mind giving people a bit of an introduction to yourself, and then we can jump into the conversation at hand.
1: Certainly. Uh, Thanks for having me, uh, Scott. Uh, My name is Brandon Beidel. Uh, Like you said, I'm a director of product at Red Ventures. Within Red Ventures, I work on um, our marketing agency uh, line of business. Specifically, my role is focused on building, maintaining, and curating the tools that we used for our data operations and our marketing operations. So anything from um, ingest to optimization to reporting, um, if it touches data and it, um, it worked, that's where I focus my time.
0: Awesome. Yeah. And and, um, I think it's especially in the kind of marketing data space that that space moves so quickly around every tool and everything moving around. So um, I I think a a good uh, place to start. We've had a couple of people talking on about this, but I, I love to get multiple perspectives on this about. How do you think when you're going into vendor selection and you start to think about maybe even, are you, are you going out there and saying, okay, we need somebody to cover this feature or how do you start that process? And then how do you think about build versus buy and, and how you get kind of from A to B? Because it presumably isn't somebody saying we need to buy, you know, X, Y, Z tool. It's okay. Why? Like, how do you think about doing that in an appropriate way instead of the "let's go splash some cash on some interesting tools"?
1: Yeah, uh, I think you're you're spot on there. Um, we we really try to take an approach of, of agreeing on what job needs to be done. I, I I really like that that kind of mentality of you know it's not about buying a tool, it's not about um, you know building you know getting new features. It's about solving a specific problem. And so uh, we really, as a, as a as a group, sit down in, in really cr- cross functional teams. You know, include the business, include engineering, include data, include data science, include legal, include privacy, include procurement. Like those those groups of people, uh, bring them together early on to understand what problem are we trying to solve. Um, you know, some groups might be more concerned about different parts of the problem more than others. But ultimately, you know, really having a, a common understanding, and for us, you know, having that common understanding in writing. So before even we talk about a single vendor, you know, what is the, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Who's the customer solving it for? Uh, being very explicit about what is the scope of the thing we're trying to solve, and then we start thinking about what vendors provide services or what what tools we could build to even solve that. And that's where we we lay out the options of multiple vendors, even against. The build option or the extended open source project. like Those are all options on the table when we come across these, these sort of problem areas.
0: And, and when you think about that, um, how do you prevent yourself from going down the too many point solution problem? Right, When you think about what, what challenge are we trying to solve? Are we just solving for this one challenge versus, hey, this is a repeated pattern or we see this in multiple different ways. Let's try and pop up to even an even higher level than this specific challenge about like, Hey, we don't want to have, you know, 15 different platforms internally versus we want to have kind of that cohesiveness. So when it's a, like, is it just that you're focused on a very specific challenge or are you focused on kind of that and how does it play into the bigger group, the bigger set of challenges?
1: Um, I think the, Maybe maybe we're just benefiting from kind of a, a maniacal focus on the question of like what business impact does this decision have? What specific like what what is this going to drive for our business? And very often, if we look at you know features that are on that that wish list and they don't clearly drive value for the business, those are things that get um, deprioritized or put somewhere else or um, you know kind of kind of set to the side. So re- really what I would say is um, rather than, you know, you, everybody can have that hundred 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 item Christmas list, like pick two or three, you know, pick what are the most important things you need to have um, that are going to drive. Cause ultimately we are r- running a business. We have objectives we are trying to meet um, going down to feature nine or 10 um, on a list isn't necessarily going to to drive the impact that the first two or three that we really think are important should. So um, there's not like an arbitrary limit. Uh, it's more of a heuristic of, is this important enough to drive business value? If so, it's part of the list, it's part of what we're looking for. If not, it's kind of an addendum, nice to have sort of, um, you know, list of features that, that we might use for um, comparison of, of vendors across a space.
0: And do you, do you see having a lot of, when you're thinking about that, like, what are we actually trying to solve? That there is a lot of kind of matching from uh, different use case to different use case where you start to see the same patterns and you go, okay, <laughs> we've solved this before. We already have this. Or, or, hey, what you're trying to do, yes, you know, feature number or request number seven could add additional value, but how do you think, but it's it's not worth, the the juice isn't worth the squeeze. How do you think about having that conversation? Because data consumers traditionally haven't been okay. With, they, they, they're like, I want to drop my requirements list on you and disappear versus um, I want to partner with you. Like, how did you get to having those conversations, those deeper conversations about partnering with them?
1: Uh, I think it really comes down to having them involved Early on in the process, because um, in a lot of the times, at least in our organization, those business folks are are actually the economic buyers on our on our side. They're the ones who are going to be signing the signing these or these contracts with vendors if we go down that path, or that um, our engineering time is going to be put on their P and L. So really, when we come down to this question of uh, trade offs of of feature sets and um, and costs. We really try to have a, a, a frank conversation of we can do these first three, um, very you know with with cost X, but if we want these next three, it's two X or three X, and, and even if it's not an exact um, you know uh, number of this is the value of the, of these features. Having that kind of broad conversation of, of saying we think this is twice the amount of effort and is only going to be twenty percent of the value we can do it, you know, then maybe it's a question, do we do it iteratively? Do we look at it in six months? Do we look at it in a year? Um, there, there's, there's multiple ways to negotiate around those things. And I, I think I've come to observe at least in, in my career that if you deliver two or three really valuable things to a consumer, they're going to forgive you some grace on the the fifth and sixth and seventh requests. So Um, I, I'm not too worried about those scenarios. Uh, it's more like showing value and, and helping understand the trade-offs in, in kind of a collaborative way. Um, which I think really comes down to knowing your organization and knowing everyone's incentives. Um, not just your incentives internally, but the incentives of the vendors themselves. Um, all of these things you want to work together when your incentives are aligned and there are going to be times when. Those incentives aren't aligned, and you're really trying to figure out how you allocate resources in a way that is the, um, the is the most appropriate um, allocation of resources in, in terms of like your your responsibility, to your organization. Because ultimately, you have limited resources; you want to use them as effectively as you can to drive the drive whatever mission your organization has. And it's not always going to be um, in every. Not everyone's going to agree with that out- outcome, but you need to kind of negotiate to those terms.
0: Well, and, and I think you, you've hit on a phrase that I've been, maybe combination of, of two things that you were saying there. You've hit on a phrase I've been using more of collaborative negotiation, because it is the, like, let's talk about what is the cost of doing that, and then you can tell me the benefit. And so if I say, hey, that's 80% of the, or that's 50% of the cost, that's 50% of the, the time or it's going to push this out by two months instead of two weeks. Like, is that what you want? And they're like, well, that's 90% of the value. It's like, okay, then yes, that is what you want versus, yeah. okay, is that a nice to have or what are you trying to achieve with that, right? Um, I, I have this problem a lot where I, I suggest people like one or two potential ways of achieving an outcome. I say, here's the outcome. I only want to focus on getting the outcome here are two or three potential ways. And people lock into those ways instead of that conversation of like, well, you're the expert on getting <laughs> to the outcome, right? I'm the expert on on giving you the uh, context of what I need. You're the expert on delivering um, a solution to, to meet that. Like, Let's exchange as much context as possible. But if you have a better way, do it the better way. Don't, do, like, this is a potential way, but is that valid? Is that useful? And I think A lot of people aren't having those conversations. Did you find, when you came in, that that was kind of already the way people were working, or have you iterated with the organization to be like that?
1: Um, I I think it's been an iteration to get there. Um, I you know based on some outside sources, and I I think it's it's important to um, not make these sorts of you know cost benefit trade offs. Overly complex or or to give a sense of false precision, I think um really, I try to, to communicate this in those conversations really on two axes, complexity and value. And typically, in those scenarios, i I tend to observe that um, engineering teams tend to understand the complexity of things. They tend to understand the complexity of how difficult it will be to integrate with set API, this API and set up a uh, a new account for a platform and what what the mechanics of, of doing you know, the thing will be. Uh, whereas on the business side, um, they have more of a sense of value. If you tell them, here's a specific capability we will give you, um, what do you think it would would you allow allow you to achieve? You know for us, marketing, it's very much the actions we take are based on expected lift to marketing performance. So for that, it's a relative equation. Oh, I think I'll have an X percent lift to my spend on this channel. The spend on this channel per year is uh, X million per year. Y million per year. Therefore, I can say the benefit of this feature is somewhere between um, you know A and B dollars. So you can you can do kind of back of the math envelope on both sides, and then I, I find that um, putting them in kind of simple user story terms we're going to achieve you know user can perform x task it is a low complexity task with a high expected value great that's where you want to start low complexity high value those that's low hanging fruit let's do that first um now you, when you get into the high complexity high value tasks that's that's kind of almost the that that's also a good space to work in but the thing you want to avoid are those high complexity low value tasks so it, try not to be uh, excessively precise because these are, all, these are all like estimates based on current belief. And as you learn more, your beliefs will change both on the business side and on the engineering side, kind of estimating that complexity. But uh, by keeping it in those terms, I, I think we've been able to navigate those conversations relatively effectively. There's always room to improve, but um, that's kind of the way we break this down, just like this two by two matrix of complexity and value. And where do we think this stuff falls on?
0: Yeah, I like that because it is that simplified thing of like everybody can kind of understand that like you said the the engineering team may not know exactly how to measure value but they get the concept of value and they they understand how to the how to measure their complexity of doing this and the business understands the value and so you can put certain rough terms around it and go okay, you know, between these four use cases let's rank them. Like let's let's look at how Complex or, or anything, um, everything is. What one, one yeah. thing you talked about in um, the interview with with Tobias was about your documentation process around your justification for a lot of these decisions. Um, could you give people a little bit of a background on that, and then we can talk about um, kind of what you've learned from doing that, and maybe uh, what you'd recommend other people to to start to do, or how to start to implement this if they haven't been, because, you know, it can be one of those, well, we haven't been doing it. So when can we start and all of that?
1: Yeah. Um, so maybe the, the idea is definitely borrowed from other areas, but um, it might be flo- floated around as like the idea of a decision journal. Um, but really what I've, I've come to, to find is that, um, you know, Writing down the decision-making process, writing down the criteria we're looking for, um, especially as the organization becomes larger and larger, uh, helps people come along on the journey as needed. Because sometimes it's you know two months into some process, somebody new joins the organization, they want to know what's going on, and there's kind of a consolidated place they can all go and see, um, you know, what what decision are we pursuing and why, but. Um, to the question, like we, we tend to break it down in a, in a few categories. One which is um, what capabilities are we trying to solve for? Um, that is again this like feature list that we talked about there. What problem are we trying to solve for whom? What are they trying to achieve? Um, what sort of what sort of value are they going to get out of it? Um, then then we were really try once we agree on that, then we start to look at uh, the alternatives themselves. Um, questions about like, how viable is this solution? Is it viable in the long-term and the short-term? What's the total cost of ownership? I think this is a really um, under undervalued, underappreciated thought is, you know, even if we can build it ourselves, like there's costs associated with it, maintaining those. What are those costs likely to do over time by either with a vendor solution or with a homegrown solution? Um, knowing what the alternatives are, you know, being very explicit that there are multiple vendors in a space, they do very similar thing. They might do very similar things. There are open source tools that are very similar things. Being cognizant of those options is, is also something we try to do very explicitly. Um, another thing we really make sure that is part of this process is identifying failure conditions. What would go wrong? What If, if these things happened, what would go wrong? What are the most likely things to go wrong? And then, as an organization, we can think about how to mitigate those things. Um, uh, think about skills training in order to like make this solution successful. What skills do we need to have in the organization? How do we? And I think this this resonates a lot with what I what I've heard on 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 your program this far is a lot about making sure that consumers of products and people that are in those domains have the skills to leverage what they've been given and not just like throwing it over the fence and saying, good luck. Um, Because there might be solutions out there that you just don't have the skills to use as an organization. And so maybe it's, it might be cool and it might solve the problem, but you're going to need a a big, big push to get the skills where you need. Um, Other things we think about security and privacy, because uh, we have, um, we want to be cognizant of what requirements we have. And especially once you talk to start talking about vendors and handling external data, we need to make sure that they're meeting our expectations for our clients' privacy, uh, um, and the the privacy of the consumers that are that we're reaching out to. And then I think the last one, which is another kind of mental exercise, is thinking about let's say you're right. Let's say you make the perfect decision. And all of a sudden your usage of this of of this product you've brought on scales 10x or 100x or 1000x what changes in your decision making process or changes in reality do you does that mean you have to scale training 1000x does that mean you have you know your your cost structure has completely gone out of whack because of the terms you negotiated with your vendor does that mean your team needs to scale to that level like if you're if not only what would go what would happen if things went wrong but what happens if things go right how would you know how would things change and how would you have to adapt if the the thing you brought on is is highly successful and well adopted and just for a voracious success reorganization? So that that's the sort of um, we have a list of questions kind of in those areas under each opportunity. And then we take the time to really vet all those things out maybe not necessarily, like digging deep into each vendor yet, but just like at a, at a high level, what we think those things are. Um, and then once we have those sorts of high level questions answered, then we'll actually start to have vendor conversations. We've thought about the problem. We've thought about the space. We thought about what would go well. Uh, if things, if, if it works, we would thought about how it would fail if things went wrong. We have now informed ourselves, formed our opinions uh, without uh, what I think is a little bit dangerous of just absorbing the vendor speak. I think there's a little bit of a marketing buzz that happens when you're looking at tools in the space where they're trying to frame themselves in such a way to make you think that there's there's uh, one problem when you really have another, or um, trying to carve out their own um, you know th- carve out their own piece of the market so that way you don't think they have competition. Um, so I think it's really really important that you are defining the problem, not the vendor, uh, and that's why we really try to go through this process of of figuring out what you're trying to solve. And then think about all of the aspects of this problem before you go too deep. Now, I say all of that, but that's because we're at a, I'm at a relatively large organization, a smaller organization. Maybe that's only like two or three questions. Maybe it's like, um, what problem are we trying to solve? What are the potential vendors and uh, failure conditions? What could go wrong? Like It doesn't have to be big and complex, um, but I, I found that by having it in writing, by having it in... Uh, in, in the open air. Like that's, I think, the more important. It's not just in writing for me to see, but you know, let everyone see it, let the organization come to it later. Maybe, not, maybe they come back to it in a year whenever we come up for contract renewals. And we want to understand why we made the decision and what assumptions have changed. But in writing, in the open, for the whole organization to see, so that way they can follow along and really kind of be on that, that journey of deciding what to do with you.
0: And when you're on that, journey, when you're on that process of making a decision, if some of your assumptions were wrong and you find them they're wrong, have you found that because you were open with your communication that people aren't holding it against you as much? Because I think that's a real worry, right? That of, of this is a big worry of anybody within data of getting anything wrong, right? Everything has to be right because that's the whole sense of how we think about data. And data isn't binary. It's not a one or a zero. I think that's, I, well, I think that might be the data data, not the actual information, right? But, you know, is it a one or a zero? Well, what does a one or a zero even mean in this context? You know, uh, I think that's where we need to move away kind of from that binary thinking. Have you found that if you've had to make a, a change or have you found that this gives you more kind of backward-leaning uh, looking uh, empathy so that, that you can say, Hey, we did the best. They did the best with what was, what, what they knew and what they thought, or has it made it so that you can better assess your historical things? Like I'm just trying to think about, cause I think this works well, right? I think in, in theory, this works well, but I think there's a lot of people who are going to be concerned about trying to pick this up. So what do you think that it it's been having maybe I mean maybe this has been the the way it's been for you every time and all throughout your career, but I'm assuming most places it isn't like this. It isn't in the open, it isn't like that. So, like trying to get people okay with it and and trying to like what have you learned from doing this that you don't think you would have learned in, in any other way, or or how can people feel comfortable heading down this journey?
1: I think. Uh, First and foremost, I I try to think about this as not as making the right decision, but as avoiding the worst, avoiding the wrong decision. Um, It's it's almost a a risk mitigation sort of mental exercise. I, you know, if there are 10 vendors in a space, maybe six of them will do a a well enough job and like solve our problem. Like finding the one that's like eking out, you know, 5% more value, the marginal cost of like running six trials and figuring out which one's the perfect one like that that doesn't that doesn't necessarily make sense for every problem so I, I think of it less as trying to figure out which of the 10 options is gonna be the, the perfect one but instead which of the 10 options would have been a horrible decision and something we want to avoid um so th- that's just kind of how I frame this more generally but I, I feel like the thing that I have learned, Um, over my career is this kind of open communication in writing that logic can be followed, that it can be found later. Um, It's something that I have been in organizations where technology decisions were made in private and they're hard to, you know, after the fact, you're trying to understand why was it made, what assumptions were there. And that's honestly a a difficult position for someone who's taking on uh, tools to follow because maybe they want to, you know, make a change, but if they don't understand the reasoning for it, they they might not see the pitfalls that would have befallen them if they had taken the other path. So, uh, um, you know, there's certainly I I agree that there are depending on the organization, there can be almost a disincentive to say, "Oh, I was I have learned new information and I want to make a new decision." But I think when framed as, "Hey, we learned something." we have new information. We have a new belief about the world. Maybe there's a new paradigm we want to adopt or, you know, the skills in the marketplace have changed and we're, we're finding that we have the talent to do this other thing. And we think it's going to be more valuable. Um, I think good leaders at any level of any organization are going to be able to recognize that they, they don't use the term Bayesian, but they are Bayesian. Um, they, they get new information, they make a new decision. Um, and and I think I've been the benefit of like lip working now in organizations that 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 see that they have the information they've seen we've updated our belief and then we're willing to make a new decision over time. We've changed out vendors. We've changed um, technology paradigms. We've we've adopted some tool open source tools that the rest of the organization wasn't willing to adopt yet. Like we've we've made major changes in our tech stack um, against the strongly held beliefs of other folks in the organization, but by doing so in the open and expressing our logic and expressing the constraints of what we're willing to do, you know, we're, we're running a trial and this is the constraint of the trial. It's only going to run for X long. And at X time we will decide that the trial was a success or a failure by these criteria. And if it's a failure, this is what we're going to do. We're going to turn all the stuff off, get rid of it and go back to the old way. So, um, again, I, long-winded way of saying, you know, keeping things out in the open, being willing to admit that we have new information, we should change our belief. I have had success with that. I n- recognize not every organization is necessarily going to be as uh, receptive to that, but I took for that. That's worked for me.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think one thing even about there the logic of the past choices, you also see a little bit of the politics of the past choices as well so you can avoid landmines about if that's out in the open, then people being like, oh, this person was really, really in favor of this. Like, let's go talk to them about is this still working and that you can have that and that you're not kind of, you know, cutting out their <laughs> their favorite tool or whatever from the platform and then it's gonna lead to a fight versus like, hey, like this, this, here's what we're looking at. I don't know that this is still fitting with what we need to do and you can have a little bit more open conversation. I just, to me, it's, it, I think there's people that are worried about um, open communication, putting a, a target on their back. And I think maybe you just kind of have to deal with that a little bit of, of risk to get to where you need to go. But um, I, 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 I haven't mentioned it super, super publicly, but I, I'll probably do that in the nearest future around. I think every, leader should have an open journal. Every data mesh um, implementation leader should have an open journal because we're all learning new things all the time, right? Like this podcast is kind of my open journal uh, about what I'm learning. I think if you listen to uh, thoughts that I had at the start, which was only, you know, 10 months ago or whatever, um, I've changed the way I think about a lot of this. And I think that's helpful. Um, But I think people are kind of worried about that um, am I opening myself up for it?
1: Yeah, I think I think you raise a good point around um, kind of seeking out those people who you might expect to be detractors and really understanding why, you know, the you, you are if you are bringing a new idea in or organization or new decision, you are a salesman. Like, let's not let's not cut, you know, mince words like you are selling an idea. You are you are trying to find ways to persuade people to come to your side. And finding those people who are likely to be your detractors, regardless of their role in the organization and their level is, is only going to help you because let's say you go and have an honest conversation and you learn some information that's actually going to change your belief, or you come to understand their incentives more and, and how to, you know, what evidence, what evidence do they need to change their mind? I think is a great question to ask when you're running against those detractors is, you, someone has made this decision, you'd like to make a new one, and then and you go to them and say, what would it take to change your mind? What evidence would you need? Um, because I think if then presented with those evidence and they you know fail to change their mind, well, then they weren't negotiating in good faith. And then you have a different problem on your hand. You have a very political problem on your hand. So um, I think finding ways to work with those people um, to understand how they are um, either for or against an idea and ultimately building up to that case of what evidence do we need to collect to to really persuade um, either them to change their mind or to, or you to change your mind because that might actually be a reasonable outcome is is you've decided I want to go down this path of of data mesh for instance I want to you know really adopt these practices but if I go to uh, a leadership, you know, leadership who's been very adamantly against it, and they and I go to them and they have a conversation where they make some really compelling points based on like where our organization is and the the technical debt associated with it and like where they think you know business changes are going to be occurring. Maybe they make a really co- compelling case that like the time isn't right, and then I can digest that, make a new decision, and, and kind of move on, move on from there. So I, I I would not run away from the people who you might disagree with. I think embracing that is actually going to help make your decisions in a longer, longer run more effective and stickier, regardless of of how they where it ends up.
0: You're getting more context, so you may change your decision simply based on that context, rather than you're going out and only trying to sell, right? Like if you're just trying to convince everybody to come to your way of thinking instead of an actual exchange, then you're also negotiating in bad faith, right? So exactly right. what you're talking about of, okay, I thought that the what we were trying to solve was X, but really from this conversation, X isn't that important. Y is much more important. And so, you know, it's um, like time to market versus data quality versus, you know, um, scalability or, or whatever. Those questions you, you know, it's not even you get to pick two. It's often you get to pick one. And if, if somebody just keeps saying time to market every single time, then you need to, to kind of dig into why they're so interested in time to market. And, and maybe you can get something in their hands. That's good enough in beta form for them to make a few decisions, to move forward on some things while you're getting to something that's actually productionizable, right? Like that it's, you can do that. So, um, yeah, I, I liked a lot of you're 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 very um, kind of even keeled about this. You're very <laughs> pragmatic about your approach. I think that's that's very helpful. Um, when you are seeing these like what what are the signals that you're watching for, or what are the signals maybe that you see that it's time to reevaluate? Not even necessarily, we have to make a change, but like, and, and kind of what you talked about as well of, of is there a return on doing this? Right. And so, yes, we could make the switch from, you know, ABC to, you know, DEF, but those two, like, I'm going to get a 5% benefit to what I'm doing a value, but it's going to cost a lot, or it's going to, it's going to defocus us or whatever. Like, how do you start that process of, of, Finding when it's time to reevaluate.
1: Well, I think this is a you know begin with the end in mind sort of problem. Is you know when you're bringing something on a new you know bringing on a new paradigm, new bringing on a new project, um, really setting up how are you going to measure success and having that having that frank conversation. Um, you know, measuring success could just be measured by a sur- survey sent out to staff. If you're talking about like a, a an enablement tool, like maybe we're going to send out surveys on a Quarterly basis to the team that we're trying to support, and ultimately our goal is customer satisfaction. If we don't see those numbers moving, well, then something's not working. You know, two, three data points. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be a uh, you know a numeric automated metric, but but really just agreeing up front is like go back to that original you know problem statement. What problem are we trying to solve? Are, and then how do we measure it? What are those key outcomes? If we don't see those key outcomes changing, there there is some element of our hypothesis is um, not working. So, um, you know, there are there are kind of logical off ramps for a lot of these decisions. I think the one benefit of going with a vendor solution is they provide that um, logical off ramp in contract expiration. So let's say. You, you buy a tool, you get it for a year and then nine months later you're like, are we really getting value out of this? Is this really worth however many thousands of dollars we spend a year? And then if you but if you're not thinking about that value if you haven't explicitly stated it, you wouldn't necessarily be able to have that like thoughtful conversation of, oh yes, we said it was going to solve problem X and it was going to drive y value. And here's the incremental effect we can see over here in this system. And and yes, we observed, we got value. We're willing to proceed versus if you don't think about that and you just kind of hum along and say, yes, we plugged in this uh, tool into our system and we're just going to just going to renew because we said we were going to do it and we have to do it. But like, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence that it succeeded? So um, having those contractual um, kind of, Mile markers, I think, is actually like a really good time to sit down and think about: Is this tool really solving the problem we set out to solve? Is it doing so in a way that we can measure and and observe? And is it doing at a economic value point that makes sense for us as an organization? Because back to the, there might be ten tools in the marketplace. Six of them would be good enough. Well, maybe one of the other six would actually be a better choice for us economically because of where we are as a business. And again, that's that's fine to make a different decision, but you, you need to have that conversation to reevaluate at those those certain points. Internal projects, um, I think, kind of in a similar fashion, we try to set time parameters that we're running a trial for X months, and at which point we will have an internal review and observe outputs and say this project was, you know. A, it can be a successful project from a learning experience, but it can still be a failure in terms of economic value. Which is fine. Again, there's no there's no problem with like us building something, seeing that we could, but finding that it actually didn't have the outcome we needed. So like, well, then let's turn off the code, turn off the infrastructure, and like move on to the next thing. Um, but really, that that putting a time constraint on it, I think, is is the uh, artificial time constraint. Is really kind of how you, we, we sort of force those conversations.
0: Yeah, I, I like that forcing function. I like the, um, you, you peppered it in there a couple of times of the economic, right? It's not just the technical decision. It's the economic decision as to, um, and, and one thing that I've talked about is with cloud, especially with data mesh, what we're trying to get to is a place where we can make more bets right easier. And we can measure if our bets are paying off and that there are lower stakes that we can put up and we can see, do we think that it's going to drive the value? And so we have a faster way to shut things off, but making bets by the actual definition of betting is that you don't know that it's a for sure positive net economic outcome. And so It's okay when that happens, right? It's not the end of the world versus historically, if you've gotten something really wrong with with data, if something didn't work out, you had this big time investment, you had this big ramp up, you know, all of these things, You, you bought a bunch of, you know, actual physical servers and things like that we're not in that world anymore, but we're still treating it like we're in that world and, and, and moving beyond that is, is really important.
1: It is the sunk cost fallacy, uh, by definition, uh, the idea that we have spent a bunch of time and we want to continue throwing money at, you know, good throw good money after bad. Um, and, uh, yeah, that, that is something I really appreciate from my econ one Oh one, uh, courses in college being like, yes, there is a reason you like once the money is spent it is spent once the code has been written, it's been written like you cannot get that time back. So don't don't try to if it's a bad idea, you have evidence to think it's a bad idea. Stop pursuing it. Do something else. There's better. There's there is a limited amount of energy and time and resources. Go do something else. Go work on a different problem.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really important message that we need for all of engineering, but especially around data, because it has been that there's a positive return instead of there's a positive return on investment, right? And so, you know, okay, we started doing this thing, it's okay to shut it down, right? And, and set yourself up where you can, where you're not putting all your marbles in one basket, right, you talked about that high value, high complexity. If your team isn't capable right now of delivering on high complexity things, don't go for the high complexity right now because your risk reward on that high complexity, high value, it's it's gonna be uh, really, really challenging to get there. Not saying don't ever you know kind of shoot for things, but also like to thine own self be true, right? Like know, know where your capabilities are and can we actually achieve this and can we achieve it in the reasonable time period, right? Like it's not just this will drive, if, if this thing is going to, we're, we're going to invest a hundred thousand and it's going to result in a million dollars of revenue a year, but it's going to cost us, you know, a hundred thousand dollars this year. And, it's, and in 15 years, it's going to start resulting in a million dollars a year. Do we really think that that's actually the case? And do we think that that's really worth it? I know those numbers probably aren't, aren't exact, but if it's like a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand dollars of revenue a year, and it's going to take you forever to get there, is it really worth it? Yeah, it's
1: yeah, that's very much a payback period economic thinking. Like you're taking on a project, how many how many years? If you're going to build this homegrown system to replace vendor X, how many years will you have to have that system up and running? before it makes economic sense to switch away from that vendor you know th- those sorts of conversations are like need to be part of when we uh, we want to take on these projects or when we want to turn something off like we run we don't run charities well b- maybe some people do that are listening but like um <laughs> even charities still have expenses and like there's like considerations around costs and like if we if we want to function in a business as a part of that business we have to have those economic considerations in mind
0: yeah exactly I think that's really something that that a lot of people I wish more economics were taught in in uh, uh, you know the I think there needs to be more philosophy and ethics and economics taught when it comes to anything data related um, one thing you talked about a little bit earlier was this which you're kind of I think we've touched on a lot which was the the concept of tool stewardship right? Like we've talked about a lot of these things of, you know, what you just said there of we could build this homegrown, but the vendor is going to have the feature and we can get the feature that we want, you know, in, in week six, but the vendor, if we partner with them, they're going to have it in month six. So is there really that value to us getting there that, that much quicker? And are we really willing to continue to develop and support and maintain and And all of these, especially with how much everything changes in data right now, like how do you how do you communicate that internally? It sounds like your your team understands this stuff now. But, you know, when you were first kind of starting to communicate that, if somebody wanted to talk through that decisioning and be like, hey, this is our total cost of ownership. It's not just the initial push. We're not just trying to get something, you know, the, the ball moving, we're trying to get it moving and keep it moving. So how do you think about that, that conversation, especially if you're, if you're in the shoes of a lot of people out there who aren't in your current situation, like how would you recommend that they go about that conversation?
1: Yeah. um, So the way we tend to break this down and again, it's not, certainly not a one size fits all is really around um, kind of skills. Uh, You know, what skills do people need to really leverage this tool set? Because a tool on its own uh, might not be useful. Um, You know, a hammer sitting on the shelf does not, you know, put in a nail. Um, So we need to make sure that the people, folks that are going to use these tools uh, have the skills to do so. Um, We think about, um, and part of that total cost of ownership, also controls and governance. Um, I think those those terms might be a little overloaded, but when I say controls and governance, I just say what processes are around those tools? What best practices do you have? Um, you know, developing those, maintaining those, communicating those, um, I, I think is also important and, and something we focus on and my, my product team focuses on. And then, and the last one we think about in terms of stewardship is, is, is back to it. A little earlier in our conversation, we talked about knowing if a decision was successful, setting up those 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 metrics and monitoring. How are we going to measure the success of this tool? Um, and, and so this the skills, controls, and governance metric and, metrics, and monitoring, I think working with a vendor, you can partner with them to solve those problems. You know, the skills, their, their incentives are to, for your product to be, uh, the use of the product to be successful. They are willing to help train. They are willing to help. You know, a good a good SaaS provider is going to want to make sure that that you get used out of the tool. So if you lay out in very specific detail who you want to know, what they want, what you want them to know, you should be able to either have them provide you resources, provide training, or something you have to build internally. we we've, we've seen all variants of that, um, and that kind of gets wrapped into this total cost of ownership idea. Controls and governance, same sort of paradigm. It's it's There's a tool, but there's like a very specific way your company wants to use the tool. So you might make a very specific decision that you want to use a, um, a template for, um, you know, a template for a code template or a, a monitor, an alert template or, or some sort of message template. You know, maybe it's not built into the product, but it's something you want to convey. And then along with that, is you have to go in and, and audit and enforce and make sure that you're actually uh, and train on those best practices. So there's a, there's a cost of ownership there. Like if you're going to bring on this tool you know, and and have governance and have controls, you either have to automate those controls or you have to have some element of people going in and making sure that the tools are getting used the way you expect. And if they're not, understand why. Oh, because the tool doesn't really solve the problem that way. Or here's this other use case we hadn't thought about like, just because someone's not adhering to to some process that you set up at the beginning doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means you didn't understand you didn't understand something in its entirety, or perhaps the end user didn't quite understand what your intent was, or was you know was didn't have the skills to understand how to solve the problem. And then the metrics and monitoring, I think, is again another thing we we want to spend time on, is because we want to know if we made a good bet. We want to know if we're getting the value out of this thing. So. Those those three things: skills, controls, and governance, metrics, and monitoring, kind of lumped under um, lumped under things we need to be doing when we buy a tool, or even when we build a tool. Because I, I still I still think that's important. You don't just like throw software out there and, and not listen to your customer, or not listen, or not train them on it, or not track how your software usage your software is being used. Um, I, I think that these these elements get baked in, like the, the costs of building a tool are very clear. It's labor costs and, and uh, of the engineering time and it's um, infrastructure costs and maintaining it. But these other things layered on top to like wrap around these tools, I think is also part, an important part to think about. Um, and, it, and it could be like, again, I'm at a large organization. So we have maybe a, a few more folks that we can, we have product managers really wrapped around these services. Um, but it could be like the engineering league could be thinking about how do I train my end users? How do I make sure that people are u- going through the flow in the way I need? How do I make sure that, you know, the pages are getting used in the right way? Like I, I worry less about the title of the person who does it and more that it gets done because you don't just want to throw a tool into someone's hands and assume they're going to use it or they're going to use it effectively.
0: So one thing that, that, I was not expecting when when I started asking a lot of these questions was a lot of what you're talking about is just intentionality around reviewing things versus you're waiting for the signals. So it's almost like instead of the alert monitoring, you're doing more observability, right? You're doing observability into how is my data platform, my my, um, tooling selection, all of that doing because you're going in and saying, hey, I'm going to reevaluate this at a certain time, right? You you talked about that with the contract. It's kind of a an artificial um, reason to start to look at that, but you talked about that as well with the um, internal tooling and things. And I think a lot of what you're talking about is just being very intentional about this is a le- living, breathing ecosystem around data. We have seen just a massive increase in, you know, I'm sure you've seen the Matt Turk mad landscape, right? Where it's the the thing, you know, uh, JMac refers to it as the Cambrian explosion. And there's, you know, a thousand tools or or technologies on this thing. And it's literally, I think it is actually literally 1000 on there. (laughs) You have to scroll in like nine times to be able to differentiate anything. So how, how do you think about kind of, all of the entropy that we've seen, but kind of focusing on doing the day-to-day work. A lot of what it seems like you're saying, and, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's like, just have intentionality, focus on on kind of what matters rather than a lot of the noise and be okay that you're not using necessarily all the coolest things, but also those cool things, you you if they're going to deliver on what you want to do, you, it's okay to buy into <laughs> to that as well. Like actually think about what you're trying to do and, and not do too much work to try and, you know, perfect being the enemy of good and all of that stuff. It's kind of what it sounds like, but you know, I guess there's a lot of people out there that are really struggling with how fast things change and how fast things, it seems like this thing is, is a thing of yesteryear. And, and how, how do you think about that? How would you talk to somebody that's coming to you and saying, you know, Brandon, (laughs) I want you to be my therapist. How do you... (laughs) How do I deal with this? Yeah, um, I always go. I
1: uh, try not to deal in absolutes. I, I tend to go back to. Um, I tend to go back to this idea: the theory of constraint. Um, in any system, there is only ever one bottleneck, one place that is constraining the global maximum output. Um, I think that there's a book called The Goal, which I read. Way too long ago to remember all the details, but it, it it the story about it is is this gentleman working at a um a manufacturing plant of some sort and and the pro and the primary thesis of this book is that whatever system it is, anytime you you the you if you optimize anything other than the place where you are most constrained, you actually don't impact the final output of the system. So. Um, as far as dealing with that sort of like buzzword bingo giant map, no one can navigate, like I don't keep up with it. I admittedly, I, I, it is all but impossible. But when I have a very specific business problem driving me to look at a said problem, then I work backwards. Okay. What is in the space? How do we look, try to solve this problem? For instance, if we have a problem with data visualization, great. That's a like we we want to put uh, dashboards in front of clients. Great. What's in the space? Well, how are they differentiated? What specifically are you trying to solve? I can narrow in on that business problem if that's top of mind for our uh, you know business business partners. That's what we do. We don't necessarily go down to like this small thing on the side. It's really focused on what is the biggest problem for driving business value. Focus on that, and then everything else is noise.
0: Do do you find though that like I, I touched on it a little bit earlier? Do you find that you end up with too many tools or are you looking for ones that you can already reuse? Because you did talk about that total cost of ownership. You don't have to retrain people to support the the new usage of an existing tool that you already know how to use. Like how how much does that weigh in as well? Because and, and like how do you think about are you adding a new tool every Three weeks, and are you kicking out an, an old tool every three weeks, or like how is that looking to you right now?
1: Yeah, um, trying to remember where I heard this idea, but um, it's I'm sure some, someone will correct me at a later point. But the idea of innovation tokens, um, it's the uh, I, know, I, w- I really wish I could remember where I read this, but um. You know, in an organization, you have a certain number of times where people are willing to change and try new things. And if you do it too often, you do it too frequently. Um, you run a lot of risk. You get a lot of burnout. People just aren't sure what to follow. Nothing feels stable. Um, it's, it's just hard, hard to manage. And I might be butchering the original intent of uh, the, the person who said that. But that's that's the way I think about it is there are only so many shots we get at changing things. Now, we've actually reviewed vendors where uh, for specific spaces where we had overlap between two tools. And you know that we had an existing kind of tool that was available and 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 did enough of the job. This new one we thought was better. But ultimately because of that overlap, we decided not to not to go with that next choice because that that existing condition of, hey, we have this existing tool. It does eighty percent of what we need. Um, like we can live without the last 20%. We don't need to add another few hundred thousand dollar contract on top of our PL. and And, that was fine and fine. A, a, a reasonable outcome because we, we had those conversations and we, and we looked at the space in, in a, in a very deliberate manner, like we've described so far. Um, but to your point, if you just went with the wind and every time a new every time you get a new call from a SaaS vendor and just bought everything you ran across you would have so many tools and so much bloat arguably that you you don't really know wh- where does it end like there's especially as as vendors try to artificially like segment their own pieces of market to differentiate themselves Um, because they want to be differentiated because if they're not differentiated, they have to compete on economics. If you are two tools, you do the exact same thing, you are going to compete on price and they don't want to do that. So that is why we see the splintering because if they're not splintered, it's, it's a race to the bottom in terms of price.
0: When you think, I mean, this is going to be a, a somewhat obnoxiously difficult question to answer, but like, just give, give it a little bit of a go if you can when you think about bringing on a new tool what percent of your total cost of ownership do you think about from integration cost with other tools right like is it that that ends up, is it because you haven't had your cambrian explosion that you're not trying to integrate everything with everything else and that you're not it's not as big of a deal but that's kind of the a long term decision or or how, how do you think about that being a big challenge when you're bringing on a new tool
1: so I think you're you're right to call out the integration cost because integration costs work in both directions in terms of setting something up and tearing something out um, so the the way that and I think we kind of fell into this rather than being so intentional, but now that I've like observed it a few times and I'm trying to be more deliberate um is really borrowing from the microservices world and thinking about any corruption layers and thinking about kind of limiting the surface area that any one system interacts with another. You know, for instance, um, we use Slack as our primary internal communications. We actually like integrate systems like through Slack. So it's like a Slack message shows up and then something else picks it up rather than integrating API to API. So that way, if we replace vendor X, it is very simple. It is a, you know, it is a again just a Slack message, something that is common between the two, and it requires less lift to do it. Is it? Um, does it make every engineering engineer happy that they didn't get to write the code to like integrate those two things, and we're using like um, some sort of like if this then that equivalent to to move stuff between systems? No, they don't love that. But in terms of keeping our kind of data platform interoperable, keeping things you know lowering those switching costs. Um, thinking about how we limit the amount of exposure entanglement that we bring, when we bring in new tools, I think is really important. Um, because again, back to our earlier discussion out, you know, we get new evidence all the time. We, we, there are new things coming on the market. There are new things that solve problems. Economics change, needs change. You're going to want your knowledge has a half-life decisions, have a half-life. At some point, the decision you made will not be the right decision. You'll want to do something else. So, like being willing to preserve some of that optionality, I think is important. There is there is a place where it like goes too far, and you're like trying to build, like if you try to build, um, you know, uh, wrappers around everybody's APIs, and you're maintaining those wrappers, and you're like losing out on some of the functionality to like keep yourself insulated. Like there can be a there's a cost associated with that. But I think, in general, thinking about it in terms of integration costs, switching costs, um, what would it take, you know, asking the question, what would it take to remove this tool from our system? And if the answer is it's really, really expensive, well then you're either you're either pot committed, you're very much in, ingrained in what they're doing, or you need to start mitigating that risk.
0: To me, that's that's where I also push back a little bit on people trying to say, You can't have any dependency on anything with like the because I think it can go way too far the other way. Exactly what you you said. You want to set yourself up to not be in a bad economic situation, but there's also people that are like I can't leverage any cloud service from any any you know AWS or GCP or Azure or whatever because. I want to be able to run them on every single one exactly the same, and it's like then you're not <laughs> you're spending so much time building your own, you know, um, S three or building your own whatever. Like you're you're spending so much time on that. So there is exactly that cost benefit of
1: yeah. There's being a, there's pragmatic. a cost to the optionality. There's yeah. Right. There's a cost to that optionality. If you want to have the ability to move to any cloud provider, you're missing out on the tools that. Um, that, that might be built on any one of the three. So there are some decisions that we have tended to, like we have made, you know, make a decision to be on a particular cloud provider. That's not a decision we're readily um, going to undo. That's not something we're gonna be able to undo tomorrow. And that's, that's a decision that when we made it, we made it on a multi-year time horizon. Other things like, you know, uh, BI tools or any other specific SAS data tool, like those are on shorter time horizons. Um, and, and those are things like where we're more willing to change, but things like what cloud service we're on, like trying to preserve the optionality there is very expensive and something that we have like decided we're not going to try to do. We're just going to lean into an ecosystem and, and just, you know, d- deal with that. Um, well, in that case, because we actually believe that these, these, that there's incentive for competition there. These cloud providers are competing against each other in, in a lot of ways, and we don't think there's they're going to be rent, not as rent-seeking as they could be, uh, because there are multiple providers that we could conceivably switch. Because let's say they do 10x their price and their vendors don't, well, that's a lot of incentive to make the effort. Yeah. That's a lot of incentive to like make the make that change, and you're going to be able to make that business case. But I think that's a a lower probability event than. Um, then i think we're yeah I, we put that as like a i would put that as a lower probability event so i think that's why we're willing to more commit to a single cloud provider
0: it, it's again it's an economic decision right if there's risk reward there and you think the risk is low so and the the reward of building in all of those extra things you know it's it's low and the cost is very high <laughs> so yeah. like why would you do yeah
1: yeah exactly. and, and and if evidence shows up that that i'm wrong which you know, uh, I'm wrong multiple times a day. This could be one of them. Like that's, it happens, then you adjust. It's not It's not the end of the world. You just like, you made that assumption up front. It was very explicit in that decision. And if those assumptions change, our beliefs should change. And like, it, I think a healthy organization um, understands that. And as long as you are aware of what that cost benefit trade-off is and, and what your assumptions are around the potential benefit and potential risks, I think it's it's a healthy way to kind of make technology decisions.
0: Yeah, it's I I feel for the people who aren't in that healthy kind of <laughs> organization that has that approach. Well, Brandon, we've talked about a whole bunch of different things, but is there anything that we didn't cover that you really wanted to, or any way you'd want to kind of wrap up the episode in general? Um, no, I think we uh,
1: we covered. Um, I appreciate the conversation. We covered everything I would want to talk about in terms of vendor selection. And, uh, I hope, I hope folks can feel a little more confident making decisions and uncertainty and ultimately, like, I think importantly, revising their beliefs uh, over yeah. time, because that, I think that's the most important part is being willing to change your mind.
0: I, I think it's having empathy for your past and having empathy for others in the past too, right? Like people are making decisions based on criteria and, and all of that. So, um, well, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that would love to follow up with you. Where's the the best place to do that? Uh, is there anything specific you want people following up about?
1: Um, LinkedIn is the best place to get a, to get a hold of me, um, and would be happy to have conversations about what we talked about today. Navigating, you know, technology decisions. Um, it's always an opportunity for me to learn to understand like what other challenges people are facing. Because back to that. Um, giant ecosystem. Like I'm not looking at every part of the ecosystem. I don't really know what, you know, go, is going on in random sector X of of the map there, but love to talk to folks and hear what they're learning and, um, you know, and, and help people kind of through that uh, decision, um, you know, that technology
0: decision journey. Yeah. I think those conversations help both sides a lot. So I, I like setting those up as well, but um, well, Brandon, this has been so great. Thank you so much for the time. And thank you as well, everyone out there for listening.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having
0: me. I'd again like to thank my guest today, Brandon Bidel, Director of Product at Red Ventures. You can find a link to his LinkedIn in the show notes as per usual. Thank you. Hopefully that interview episode was really useful for you. Please do consider getting in touch with guests from the show, from these episodes. Most have said they'd really love to people to reach out to them. And please, as well, if you've got a minute, rate and review the podcast somewhere. It really is honestly super helpful for other people looking into kind of data podcasts to kind of get this in front of them. Data Mesh Radio is again provided as a free community resource by Data Mesh Understanding. It's produced and hosted by me, Scott Herleman. In April of 2023, I left Data Stacks, who were wonderful in getting the Data Mesh community stuff started, so give them a shout. For streaming and real-time AI needs, but I left to start my own industry analyst kind of information as a service firm. Our offerings are affordable and you can do them on a one-off or a month-to-month basis. You know, read kind of, throw it on the credit card, don't worry about like going through purchasing and things like that. The services include lots of practitioner roundtables, you know, one-on-one data mesh kind of planning or feedback sessions and tailored introductions to other data mesh practitioners that are focused around Your topics of interest, you know, what what are you actually running into challenges with? We also have some free programs around introductions and roundtables that people can kind of check out as well. Check the show notes or just go to datameshunderstanding.com for more info or helpful resources. As always, if you have suggestions for guests or topics, please do get in touch as well and have a wonderful rest of your day. Now let's hear that funky outro music.